This is the Convergent Science Network podcast. Leading researchers in the domain of neuroscience, brain theory and technology are interviewed by Paul Verschur and Tony Prescott. This is Paul Verschur with the uh, uh, Convergent Science Network podcast and I'm here with Daniel Polani. Daniel spoke about his work here at the BCBT Summer School 2016. And, and Daniel, you, you very much emphasized the more, let's say, information-oriented perspective on cognition and in particular embodied cognition. So why did you take that? How did you end up having or taking that specific perspective on trying to understand this complex uh, phenomenon? One key issue that... Um bothered me for a long time is the question how is evolution directed in a way that moves it forward sufficiently fast so one question I was interested in many years ago was evolution of sensors how do you, does an organism or a serious species learn evolutionarily that a particular sensoric channel has information that's relevant for its survival or could be relevant for its survival which means that because we can assume that evolution is very local in terms of exploring the solution space, that there are indicators which are of local nature that nevertheless give a drift to the evolutionary process which advance it to its exploration of further and deeper informational sources. And uh, the way to quantify that, to characterize that, for that you wanted to, to be able to say how much or what this information is about. And for this we had to understand how to reinterpret information theory as basically handed down by Shannon in a way that allows us to incorporate the concept of relevance, so relevant information, and uh, very important article came out in 1999. It was the information bottleneck article which basically made the argument you, that you can actually color, you can actually tag information. In other words, you can make a distinction between information that's relevant and information that you may have but you don't want. Mm. But now, in, in, you, you, you take a very specific view on, on the evolution in that sense of both uh, sensing and, and cognition because you consider sensors as being highly optimized systems that that work close to, let's say, their physical limits. Um, is that is that critical to this approach that you take? That sensors are really that highly optimized, or that's arbitrary? Um, in principle, it's arbitrary, but there are indicators that this gives us a hint on the fact that information really is a major driver for evolution. So I, I'd rather would say that this is, originally it was a motivator to say yes, information is important for our nature, um, but as we started looking at the information perspective itself, uh, we suddenly saw that informational perspectives, if you assume that evolution uses it as a proxy for directing morphogenesis, uh, processing, information processing, or behaviors, etc., that it may actually desire, or, or so, desire, but, but by dri drive, push towards a incre increasingly more high-resolution sensorics. So in other words, it's basically a mutual feedback loop, mutual positive feedback mm -hmm. loop. But now, 
So, okay, if we consider that, that sensors are highly optimized, they're highly optimized relative to what? Excellent question. The original idea was that they are highly optimized relevant to some hypothesized goals. That was what he originally looked at. So the original relevant information was just about that. Some indicators came up that indicates, no, it's not enough. Um, you get actually a hollow of other possible goals that become accessible. And of course, if your niche changes or your agent gets a bigger brain slowly or you have additional uh, goals in your life, it turns out that suddenly with the same senses you can solve other problems. So in other words, you, you get the opportunity to drift from goal to goal. Uh, so several questions emerge, where do the goals come from? Uh, second question is, how does this drift possible at all? Because often if you're highly specialized, you can't change anything without losing performance somewhere else. The argument that we suppose now, or that the information theoretical view has given us is, sometimes you get more information than you bargained for, this extra information gives you what people would call some kind of openness for evolution, or it permits you more adaptiveness in evolution that, than you would naively expect. Mm -hmm. But now we can distinguish different sensor systems, right? So, for instance, we we can the oldest sensory systems are probably mechanical systems, um, so they just detect forces. Then we would have sensor systems that deal with molecules, molecular structure, which is chemical sensing. Then you have your sensory system that with sound pressure waves, which might build again on mechanical sensing. That's your auditory system. Or you might look at a lateral line of fish that would pick up uh, turbulence in, in flow. And then lastly, you would have sensor systems that like photons, and there you have vision, right? So we, we, in that sense, these biological systems you look at and, and that you try to understand uh, in, at the first step, the sensors with which they interface to these different environments in which they can exist, you could argue, well, but maybe these different environments have also different informational requirements and a sense of a, a single notion of optimization that will sort of fall flat rather quickly because this diversity of subdomains in which sensors have to adapt. So do you believe we can, we can have like a, a, a generic informational optimization criteria to look at these sensor systems or we should already link it to the specific subdomain in which they act if we, if we go from mechanical sensing to vision? I should expect that... Um of course, the ecological niche plays a role, and you will basically select for various, there will be different attractors. If you look at how a sensor and its environment interact, you have different attractors and different solutions for the same problem. A uh, classic example is, of course, uh, bats. Bats use essentially the auditory sense in a vision form, in a vision modality. Um, this is a very interesting development uh, because it's vision, but it's also active sensing, very, very active sensing. Without uh, sound generation, it doesn't work. But on the other hand, you have, for example, owls, and they just improve their night vision. So it's, it's not a unique solution, and maybe there is a historical accident that gets you in a particular direction. One interesting case is, of course, snakes can detect infrared, and they use actually skin sense um, which has been basically anatomically formed in such a way that it operates as a camera obscura for infrared. Now, the funny thing about that is everything about this hardware that they use essentially is equivalent to what we have. So in other words, the main difference between the snake skin sense is, apart from the wiring the brain, essentially the anatomy. 
not the actual nerve uh, quality or skin property or so on. It's really the anatomy mostly. Mm -hmm. But now, if you if you say that that sensors tend to operate at some physical limit, right? They're optimized, and indeed, we we look at these strange kind of sensor systems like infrared in the snake that sort of is is capitalizing on different sensory systems. Um, in addition, of course, such like an infrared detector only is is effective as a sensor if there's actual signal transduction related to it. So can we really talk about the evolution of a sensor in isolation without taking into account the morphology in which it's embedded and also the signal transduction me mechanisms that it has to deploy? Or it has to be interfaced to. Of course, I completely agree. I mean, you have multiple systems interacting. And um, there may be, in the evolutionary history, you have different balances, different drives in different directions, and there may be not a single attractor into which you converge, starting in from the same uh, original species. So I don't expect that. Uh, but again, this is a more... Um, becomes then a process of actually modeling the particular evolutionary pathway. Um, what the informational view gives you is not saying how this pathway will look like because that's requiring a lot of assumptions. What it says is, however, what possible niches could look like. So what are places where information is hidden that could be discovered and it gives us a hint why you actually can find mm -hmm. this niche. The big question in evolution is not that there are solutions which work. The big question in evolution is how do you get there? How does evolution actually discover the niche? And the argument is, if you have some information, indicates something interesting is there, there is, that, that would be the hypothesis, an innate drive or an innate relatively generic mechanism that always assumes that when there is better information available, then it's worth refining it, wherever it comes from. And then you have basically something that accelerates adaptation um, by pure if you like experience that this actually works in our world. Mm. In other words, information is a local, gives you a local gradient or a local indicator where good solutions may be found. Right. No, but this is an important issue, right? Because it's also sometimes because of the processing that goes on behind the sensor that you actually can reach the actual hyperacuity of the sensor itself. So that means the optimization of that sensor sheet in some sense is not informing you about the kind of information processing that is possible. You start, let's say, to integrate across multiple sensors. A typical example is, is chemical sensing, right? Where, where the sensitivity of single chemo receptors on, on the, the male moth antenna are orders of magnitude uh, weaker than the detectability that the ability that the animal has with respect to heart rate responses to pheromones, right? So you will see heart rate changes to homeopathic levels of pheromones in the air that you will never be able to pick up with a single sensor that they have on their antenna, right? So that means, in some sense, it would argue that to, to really think about sensor systems in isolation could, could also then be misleading you in terms of understanding what the informational capabilities are of the system that is integrating that sensor, right? So, so isn't there a risk in, in, in the analysis you presented that, that you say, well, if we have a sensor and the sensor gives you the upper limit of what can be achieved. And we know for many biological systems, this is maybe not really the case. They can go beyond what the sensor as such 
in isolation will be able to deliver. Well, if you, if you look at that, you have to look at integration over time, for example, and take memory into account, right? So, um, of course, uh, what, when we say a sensor limits the information it, in the sense of um, data processing inequality, that you can't get more information through the sensor than the sensor permits. But, of course, if you can integrate over time, then the effective uh, bandwidth is much higher. Um, you can accumulate evidence, there's no question about that, and if you do it for long enough, then you at some point have enough information to make your decision, for example. Uh, or you can integrate information which otherwise is worthless, and suddenly other information comes in, suddenly this information becomes valuable. In fact, in the case of the snakes, the infrared and optical information is integrated in the optic tectum, and it's quite intricate how they interact and how the snake decides there's an object of interest there. Mm -hmm. So, <clears throat> this now becomes relevant for the second point that you that you made, right, also in your talk, where you say, well, so sensors are optimized. So, that means also from an energetic perspective, they, they are optimized to give you certain kinds of information efficiently. While the process, the cognition that runs behind it is expensive, right, because metabolically, the brain takes a disproportionate amount of your energy budget as, as an organism. And um, so, so you see that as the main, from an informational perspective, this, this, this energetic optimization of then the processing that brains perform is the main challenge for evolution. Is that, is that the consequence, is that what you're saying? It's a bit more complicated than that. Um, there are different timescales at play here. Because if I have a brain that's big, it will eat that energy. And I, I can't just say, okay, as, a, as a, an adult, I will just shrink my brain by 50%. I don't need it. Actually, it does happen in some animals. There's a, it's called a fish that eats its own brain. And um, that animal basically finds a rock, uh, swims around until it finds a rock. And when it finds it, it will never leave the rock again. And when that happens, it actually basically consumes its own brain. So it does happen, but it's not typical. So um, the way to look at it, in my opinion, is... From point of view, can you profit from a bigger brain, say, on a longer timescale, longer means over several generations? And if you can, then yes, you maintain mm -hmm. that, otherwise you just reduce the, 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 the investment into bigger brains. We should also not forget that there's, of course, Darwin's brilliant idea of sexual selection. So maybe that highly social animals will be more selective towards more intelligent uh, sexual partners and thereby the brains will be driven to be bigger too. Uh, on the other hand that has to be sustainable and that only works if the brain actually does something sensible. Right. Now, but, you, but, now, so, but now, now you see the, the, what I'm driving at, right? Because I was making the point that the sensory the, 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 the perceptual or the sensory capabilities of the organism can go beyond what the sensor can deliver by virtue of doing the processing, yes. right? So yeah, yeah. now I could argue, well, maybe this solution was identified or was converged on during evolution because to really optimize the sensor would actually metabolically be way more expensive than to put that effort in the, the processing, like integration yeah. in time, use yes. memory. And it's in that combination that they can actually get a virtual sensor, if you want, or an effective sensor that gives me the information I need. I basically would be loath to separate them so strictly. 
um, because sensing and processing are... I can imagine the situations where it's almost impossible to dis distinguish, okay? So in some cases it's relatively simple to distinguish, in some cases it's not. And, um, we have an example, I didn't show that uh, in, the, in the talk because of lack of time, but we have an example where we can choose whether we prefer to use uh, memory or sense the sensor as to achieve a certain utility value. And you can shift that around. You can say if the sensing is cheaper, then you shift it towards the sensing and you use less memory and vice versa. And you can look at it yourself. If you look at your Google Maps when, when you find a road, look at the map all the time, then essentially you say sensing is cheaper than remembering the path. But of course, um, this is very inconvenient when you do the path a lot of times and it may be actually cheaper for you to keep it in mind, not having to look and stop at every corner to mm -hmm. watch the map externally. So I think, I, think uh, I, I do agree with you that um, processing is not, may be viewed as an extension of sensing. And perhaps that's the way it, it, it emerged, that basically um, the system discovered that while treating your own brain as a meta-sensor is, is a good thing. Uh, on the other hand, it's, I, I'm not clear the way, but whether we can really separate that. Mm -hmm. Yeah, but still for, the, for your framework, this is, this is a, let's call it the challenge that we, or, or, or a constraint we have to again look at, maybe after we went through the framework, um, because it seems to say, well, I must be optimal in informational terms because that will help me to reduce the cost of the processing. Um, I would say that the cost of the processing must be sustainable. It's like having a company that has a, permits itself to have a certain amount of administration level. And, um, for example, if I have a big administration, yeah, you have to make enough money to keep these people working. Um, doesn't mean that you immediately reduce administration when you don't have enough money or, or that you you will just not survive on the long term if you have a big administration that you can handle or that can handle your, your stuff efficiently. Mm -hmm. So the, the parsimony principle is of course that if I have something to process, then I don't want to waste too much um, effort because I may have other things to process. Um, if I have an emergency service, of course, that emergency service has a certain bandwidth um, which is required and it has to be activatable at any time. And if the emergency service requires 10 bits per second for some reason, these 10 bits must be available to me as an organism. But of course, I may do different things and of boring things I'm doing, kind of grazing or just walking around. I don't want to lose a lot of processing power because I may need it for other things. Mm -hmm. So the argument is a mixed mixture of energy processing, a mixture of other resources that may be required for other tasks, um, it is, however, still a parsimony principle. Mm -hmm. Right. Okay. But then, um, so that then brings us to, to sort of the linking of the sensing and the action and decisions, right? And this is where I think you, you really put the brunt of, the, of your effort to try to understand what should be the properties yeah. of really that, let's call it a decision-making component, right? Mm -hmm. So... Um, so what, 
how do you see then the core on the one that constraints that this decision making system is facing and how do you see what are the main principles that that allow a decision making system to satisfy those those constraints well the core constraint is of course the way the agent is embodied in the world okay this uh, imprints a signature on the information flow the way what you do in the world impinges in the world and you perceive impingement again uh, determines what you can possibly do because that's not something that it's in your choice it's given by physics by your physicality by your body um, so this is the main constraint that determines what happens the other constraint is and that's much freer and that's of course in a postulate which may be wrong of course um, that the brain essentially at least in our models is essentially free to organize this information. This is, of course, not real. Real In reality, there are other constraints, but what we would like to know is what other constraints are natural. So one example is, for example, this goal-relevant information, where we specifically split the this simple decision-making and the long-term goal, say, uh, to study the emergence of sub-goals. Of course, we put in an assumption here that there's a long-term memory that stores the goal you want to go to, ultimately. This is an assumption. Uh, as Sander van Dijk, one of my uh, former PhD students, said, it's embrainment. It's not the body that we are fixing here, but actually how the brain is constrained internally. Ideally, in our studies, we want to limit the assumptions about embrainment as far as possible, because we would like to have an answer. Is what type of brain structures do you want to process this information efficiently? So, in other words, um, you ask, I want to process this information, okay, a certain amount, and the question is, are there special sub-manifolds of solutions which prefer certain brain organization for making, processing the search adaptation faster, more efficient? This is a question that is ongoing research. We don't have a clear answer. But clearly, when you make assumptions about embrainment, if I may use this word, um, then we get things like, for example, emergence of sub-goals, just by virtue of saying, okay, there's somewhere where I'm storing slowly changing long-term goals. And then this concept of sub-goal emerges naturally from the interaction of the world. So making judicious assumptions about how the brain is structured, how the world is structured, can give you very natural hypotheses about emergence of natural phenomena again yeah but wouldn't it be fair to say that it's more like enmindment because hmm. you cannot really make you know, normative statements on structure at best you can make normative statements on function yeah, like yeah. on information flows yeah yeah no, just just for clarity yeah yeah, right? yeah. I, I'm, I'm not very um, I'm not very um, ideological on that mm -hmm. um, it is not a statement about how the brain actually looks. It's a statement about how a possible organization of information processing may look mm. for certain purposes. We have assumptions about how information is being processed, but these assumptions are, at this stage, not really well-founded. And they are based on plausibility mm. and whether the phenomena that emerge are something you actually see. Yeah, but in that sense, you really want to get to a normative formal framework, right? Because that was also one of the points you made, that yes. in sort of the biology is ambiguous. We have no clear understanding how this works as a structure. Yes. 
robotics is arbitrary. People have many different solutions for the same thing. We yes. don't know whether there's any common principle. Yes. So what we really need is is let's say a normative framework that says, okay, these are the decisive criteria that all these systems have to follow in order to be now informationally optimal. Yes. Okay. And, and that, that's why I was hassling you earlier on this on this notion of informational optimality, because that's of course a very important guiding principle and yes. assumption yes. of this whole framework. Yes. Right? Yes. Um, so now but then you linked you linked your framework to so this informational framework that, that you're advancing to the Carnot cycle, which essentially describes um, energy, right? It's it's a sort of the expansion of a chamber that allows you to do work. Yeah. So, so w w why do you think that's a good metaphor to look at decision making and information processing in biological systems? I was very um, kind of uh, going quite bravely into into an aggressive metaphor here, um, but of course uh, there are actual attempts to link information processing and physics. Um, uh, we have seen quite a bit of uh, progress in recent years, actually. Um, for example, by David Wolpert, who has generalized Landauer's principle, and there are a couple of other really interesting pieces of work in this area. And um, the question is, on a very low level of physics, um, there seems to be an intricate relation between energy processing, uh, information processing, energy consumption, energy production, entropy production. Of course, these levels are very, very far away from where an organism sits in his information processing level. However, in between, there are many levels, and we have to take into account that in every level there is information processing happening when a cell organizes its organelles, the organelles organize the ATP consumption. This is organization, this is information processing. And I would now go on an extreme speculation, maybe entirely wrong, so uh, don't, don't uh, take my word for it, but what I would say is that as you progress to arrange your information to higher and higher hierarchies, you have a kind of loss function or loss component. Basically every hierarchy level loses your factor 100 of your free energy that you have and what remains is kind of your investment for the next level. And as you go up and up and up, only very little remains for you to actually operate on freely, and free in the sense that you can do new discoveries, accumulate this information. Most of the stuff is administration. So administering ATP, where ATP goes, where your cellular motors are driving stuff out, getting trash out, getting nutrients in. Um, this is information processing, except that you don't bother with that. Mm -hmm. It just happens under the hood. But I do think that, in principle, a complete theory would encompass the lowest level, the unbreakable barriers of Landauer, essentially, and, and friends, to the highest level, where, essentially, information is almost detached from the physicality, in a way, um, and find out, no, no, of course, it's not detached, there is a link, but I think this link becomes more and more tenuous with every level, so it's very, at this stage, we are very far from, actually, seeing how the high-level information processing constraints are linked with the low-level physics. Mm -hmm. So I, two parts of two answers. One answer is an aggressive method, metaphor, nothing else. The other part is, no, it's actually not just a metaphor, it's real, but um, the Carnot cycle is really far down the scale, mm -hmm. and cognition is very far. Right. But there's an important point about this, right? Because it also means that you are willing to commit 
the notion of information processing to actually physical properties of the system because in the end what we're talking about is quantifying the entropy in the system and whether entropy is increasing or decreasing right so if you say if you say look this is information processing it means there's a change in entropy yeah essentially this is really important right that we don't get confused what we mean with information then um we need to be careful uh, you don't necessarily reduce entropy in the system itself by doing information processing you can um you have to take into account the environment too. So in the environment you can choose sub-environments where you reduce entropy, for example, by information processing. You definitely decrease other type of entropy um, because you simply generate trash if you want. And even your system remains unchanged. You can have a completely reactive robot that essentially push, pushes all the pieces of all the boxes in your room to the walls. So that system reduces the entropy of the boxes distributed over the room. Itself, it's completely reactive, so there's no change, internal change of entropy. And of course, entropy in total of the universe increases, because there's heat and the, the atoms, uh, the gas um, of the air moves faster, whatever. So in other words, information processing does not mean for the agent itself reduction of entropy. Mm -hmm. No, it relates to the observer, describing the agent in its environment. Yes, if you include the environment, then yes, and also it depends on what you consider the environment. Mm -hmm. So it really depends what you look at. No, and on top of that, even uh, it would depend on which state variables of the agent environment you consider. Absolutely, right? absolutely. Yes, yes. So this is really important that, that to understand it. It's, it's, it's a relative perspective. Yes. It's, it's observer-dependent. Right? It's always observer-dependent, except if you go to the full wave function, if you like, the full state. In which case, uh, the problem is, in my opinion, not yet satisfactorily addressed, but perhaps it will happen. Right. So then, to, to illustrate, your, to introduce your framework, you start to make a distinction between open and closed loop systems, and, and, and to try to build a, a more formal perspective on what, how they would be differentiated better or worse, right? So w why do you think now open and closed loop, that comparison is, is helpful? To, to, to introduce this information theoretic framework that you're that you're advancing. We could have looked at, let's say, sensory processing as we discussed earlier, right? Okay, I mean, essentially this idea of Touchette and Lloyd um, of considering these two cases, they're the basically extreme cases. An agent that is basically nothing else but the blind process doesn't take in any information. It's basically a modulation of physics. You could consider it a modulation of physics which has a particular property that itself it does not take in any information. Closed loop means it does take in this information and gives it extra power. It makes it a more complicated process. But it turns out that you can, and that's where it gets interesting, bound the extra entropic influence of this closed loop agent by how much it takes in. And this is, in my opinion, very cool because you see for the first time in a way, well, not for the first time, Ashby saw that before, but in a precise sense for the first time, that cognition or cognitive performance underlies information pr processing principles. You can't just make decisions of a certain quality without having a certain informational invariance or minimal, minimal uh, balance. Uh, respected. And that is cool because you essentially say 
cognition is not some kind of abstract platonic thing that just happens somewhere and you can make anything happen. No, you can't make anything happen. There are certain constraints on what you can make happen under certain circumstances, which I think is, is a really important step because it says, unlike what AI usually does, treats AI kind of intelligent decision-making in an abstract world that's devoid of, of any constraint, you can essentially think of anything. You are constrained by very, very tangible aspects of the world. Mm -hmm. But now, in, so what you're saying is, look, if you consider the open loop case plus the information added by being able to sense, you give an upper bound of what the closed loop controller yes. can do. Yes. Right? But I could then oh, that that that's a toy example because within the context of the niche and that the earlier emphasized as being also relevant, if I have an open loop control in an environment with predators, I'm dead in no time. Right? So then and then you can okay, but maybe the, the upper bound would, would require the open loop plus the information coming from your sensors plus some minimum memory system. Sure. Right, to satisfy, let's say, some lower bound of survivability. Of course. Does it matter to you or that doesn't matter? No, no, memory is the next step. Um, okay. we, we, did, we did not consider memory of a, for a very simple reason because, um, well, to Shed and Lloyd did not consider memory, but of course memory is the next natural step. Um, in fact, there are some as, uh, attempts to consider memory as a kind of constructed reality that is constructed in such a way that it keeps the things active and alive which are relevant and which require history to accumulate, for example. Yeah. Yeah. So if you want to, to have a thresholding process, you have, have a memory that is able to count or to measure, oh yes, I have seen enough and please, now we have, can make a decision. So yes, of course, memory is the natural next step. But memory is a, is a strange thing, in my opinion, because it's half environment and half agent in a way. It's a quite hybrid thing. I agree. No, you're right. So then, okay. So so here we have this this example. But now we can tr start to define, let's say, constraints onto this uh, agent environment interaction. But now, in the open closed loop case you discuss, basically we have a world state. Uh, which are considered discrete states, if I got it right, and this is something else we, we can worry about. And then we have sensory states and we have actions, okay? So we have, we have a three-state system. And so world, sensor, action, and they, they're coupled to each other. Um, what in that makes the agent then? That is a very sharp question. So if you remember my diagram about um, world, sensors, memory, actors, memory, and so on. I emphasize the symmetry between world and memory. And when you ask what makes the agent there, the question is very subtle. If you look just at the graph, you don't see it. The graph itself does not make a distinction. There's no way of distinguishing world and memory. My personal opinion is, and that's completely speculative, I can't prove it at this stage, the main difference between world and memory is the fact that the world arrows are highly constrained. There is very little that can happen there and the information density is low. The world is simple. Memory is where you can rewire, in principle, at least, arbitrarily. So you could have a maximally compressed information processing, um, which is essentially what, you know, when we talk free will, I think that's what hides behind it. 
um, the fact that in principle you can have by evolution or adaptation or whatever a very very complicated rewiring of the memory which is virtually arbitrary think of a computer a keyboard you can choose any keyboard you want you can rewire it as you want but what you can't choose is how to organize the pixels on the screen so that your eyes will recognize it so in other words there you have a very strict constraint about geometry but on the way you are actuators will operate with that and basically your memory can operate with that you have many choices mm -hmm. and i believe that the agent if i give you a system which contains a world in one agent i think the agent will be that part of the system where the constraints are basically unconstrainedly complicated so the world would be the part which has lots of compressible structure mm -hmm. It's a very vague statement, I know. But, but, but let's resonate with it anyway. So already the diagram that you sketch is in some sense a tiny fraction of the total set of possible states because in some sense in your diagram you go back in time. You say, okay, I'm at T0 and now I can show you back into the past where I came from. And that's this trajectory of world states, sensor states, action, etc. Because at any point in time, there's a plurality of world states, right? The, the, sure, yeah, right? Yeah, yeah. There's a plurality of sensor states. There's a, put, uh, there's a huge action potential. That's true. Right? And then it all collapses into one world state, one sensory state, one action. And then we have our next world state, right? So that means... We have to constrain that, that highly variable set of, of mm -hmm. states of different kinds. So the, my question is, aren't we lacking the key state that makes the agent an agent? And that is an internal drive state. That the state, that agent is, I'm ready to explore to serve my survival of my informational needs. Or I'm ready to consume a resource because I have to, serve, to take care of my energetic needs. So isn't that... The internal state defined by the survivability of the agent, not a key constraint on this plurality of world sensor and action states. Well, the model is quite general. So, in fact, um, what M is, I didn't say. So, it's not a problem to plug into M or to, to internally consider M as contain, containing such a, let's call it, pseudo goal or pseudo teleological um, mm -hmm. uh, parameter. That's not a problem. Um, so we could split it. So the assumption that M is one coherent blob is the most generic assumption when you have just one agent. Mm -hmm. um, so you could put it in. So but wait, you, why would you put it in M? It should actually already mediate between the sensory state and the action state, right? In the earlier example. Yes, in the earlier example we had just a reaction, reaction force, mm -hmm. but essentially in the later example S don't, doesn't talk to A without M. Yeah, exactly. So, 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 so you collapse it all in M, essentially. Everything is in M, yes. Mm -hmm. Okay. Um, so then, okay, so, so we, we, have a, we have a scheme now where we can think about how behavior comes about and how behavior in turn depends on sensory states and the more advanced version, how it also depends on memory. Okay, okay. good. So, so we got that. But now what you really want to understand is, okay, what should my actions be? And then you say, well... My normative perspective on that is that your action should serve your informational needs because the controller wants to optimize its information processing because that's the most expensive thing it's facing. Correct? Um, it's a mixture. I mean, we looked at Lagrangians 
So we looked at um, a mixture of goals or goal rewards versus informational needs. We can go just for informational needs, but in that case you can just do nothing, for example. In the case of empowerment, it doesn't care about informational needs. In fact, it's, it's completely orthogonal to that. It says, this is my goal. It produces the goal from, from this prediction. I have not made a statement on how to balance informational needs and empowerment. Uh, it's possible to do that. Uh, we have some work in that direction. Then you get some salient strategies emerging. This is work by Tom Anthony. Um, but the interesting point is really at this stage that we want first to understand the ingredients before we try to build a mm -hmm. synthesis of things which we individually don't understand. Right. Okay. Um, fair enough. So but basically what you're saying is, look, um, within the informational perspective, right, I can make a normative statement of how I should bring these things together and how I can use my memory to do that. Yes. It's just one 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 view yes. on this system. Right. And there, um, you, you made the point that there might not be a free lunch, but sometimes there's free beer. So, so what does that mean relative to optimization of information? That was essentially an allusion to the embodiment example, so the twisted world example, where you have basically an agent that if the world is simply organized, so um, there is a labeling of transitions which is consistent over the world, then the agent can solve certain natural problems very, very easily with little information processing. When you do the relabeling, which in terms of what we would call traditional AI is completely equivalent, people will say it doesn't make a difference. It turns out for an embodied agent, if you take the embodiment seriously, so actually north and east are essentially a local coordinate system of the agent, which the agent takes it with it. If that's completely skewed up, and twisted around the world, the agent will have a much harder time performing the same task. In other words, your world, if it's well designed, if your embodiment is well designed or your world is nice to you, that's the way I like to say it, then your cognitive cost is so low that you can easily solve a task that actually looks quite difficult. And that is something that, of course, a group of Pfeiffer and many others have made for a long time. But I believe information theory gives us a window into why mm -hmm. it's such an advantage. It really reduces the cognitive load you need to solve the task. Yeah, but, but um, I, I, could, I could argue that, that isn't that almost a trivial statement because... If you get information for free, then it's easier. Well, you don't get this explicitly for free. Okay. The information is implicit in, let's, the physicists would call it a gauge symmetry. So an agent that has its actions, basically when you move the agent around the world, these actions keep a certain type of meaning. If that meaning completely is perturbed or, or, or shuffled around on the movement of the agent, then this meaning lose, hasn't, doesn't help you. This is what we have in the twisted world. In that case, the agent basically is moved around, but the actions northeast, southwest lose the meaning in any other location. They mean different things. Um, on the other hand, if you have basically an agent that takes its action with it, it's like a local gauge symmetry, basically saying, I'm taking this property of north means roughly the same thing in this world. Now, in which sense does it mean the same thing? 
We haven't properly defined that, but what we did say, we measured the information impact. Mm -hmm. That is very visible. So it's not saying this and this is the number of bits that the world actually gives you. We say if the world has this kind of symmetry or pseudo-symmetry, then you gain cognitive load. You, your cognitive burden is reduced. Mm -hmm. Right. My hope would be that there would be at some point a way of actually writing it down, saying this is mm -hmm. how much your world actually tells you upfront. Right. Exactly. But so if we now, if we if we if we forget about the embodiment for a second, um, what is the specific informational quantity that's being now optimized? Is it like the description length of the information I deal with? Is it, let's say. The information gain I have per 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 step size. In our examples, it was what we call relevant information, the information you need to take an action at a certain average utility level. Um, that so that's basically a pull quantity that tells you how much information do I need from the environment to perform actions at that level. Um, description length is something more complicated than that. We don't look at that at all. Um, this would be also probably more related to learning itself uh, rather than to actually... We would like to call this metabolic information. It's information that you just process mm -hmm. basically on every step. It's like you bring out your trash, you, you read your post, you process it, and this is what you do every day. It's basically how much time do I have to allocate or how much resources, information resources, do I allocate for just maintaining mm -hmm. my status quo, my, my okay. process. So then the criterion is really utility, right? I have to sort of optimize yeah. with respect to utility. Yeah. But then uh, how well does that scale if the number of possible goal states increases and also when the potential goal states can be contradictory? Uh, excellent question. Um, the scaling is something we start to address. It's a problem in empowerment. Empowerment has some aspects, gets some aspects of that. We have various tricks and algorithms and approximative algorithms which we are using. It's probably of the methods we are doing the most well-developed one because it turned out to be quite useful. Now, you still talk about contradictory goals. It's an excellent question. And I'll give you an example. If you are in Barcelona and you say want to go to, have to decide you go to Lisbon or you go to uh, Granada, then I would say that first of all you can go to Madrid and then decide. So in other words, there's part of the route which you can take without committing to a particular goal. Then at some point you have to commit and then you have to split and make the decision. And I do think that organisms, if we believe our goal-relevant information formalism, would profit from doing so for various reasons. Number one, you have, don't have to know so much. You, have, you can concentrate on moving on highways only. So for example, the road to Madrid. You don't have to learn all the side roads that you would have to take to Granada or to, to Lisbon. First, you go to Madrid, and only then you worry about the next step. Second organisms, I think, profit from not committing to a decision too early. So if you can avoid to not commit, it's actually an advantage, because it means that you can still reorganize, re-decide if another goal pops up. So my argument would be um, contradictory goals, as long as you don't have to make the decision now, don't hurt you necessarily. You go just to the intermediary goal, sub-goal, that supports them both. Mm -hmm. Okay, 
But now there might be other constraints on that, right? Like cost. It's not only that goals can be contradictory, like I want to go east or west. It can also be I can get a higher reward, 10% more than baseline, for 20% more metabolic cost. Now, that might be a bad deal. But if I just go for my utility, it might be an acceptable increase. Or it might be I have to take a certain risk of damage in order to obtain a certain uh, reward. So, so, so it's not only that they are opposing within the task domain, if you want, but they can also be opposing on different dimensions of survivability, to call it that. This is an excellent question. Um, I don't think there's one answer to that. If risk-taking is an interesting point, you, I would say if I had to make a blunt statement, that you take only risks if you really think that your chances in the future to get that goal are not that high. So risk-taking will be higher if you are in a bad position, will be lower if you are not. And that's very natural. I think that would also, if you write it down properly, emerge from a mixed evolutionary reinforcement framework. Uh, I would expect an agent that is a very confident of a continuous and steady growth of power, not risk it. Um, in fact, um, utility, if you look at utility curves, they look typically risk-averse when you are in positive and high positive values. But they are risk-friendly when you're not. The other point, and this is very interesting, is what is more important, the goal or information saving? Now, I would argue it this way. If you are somebody who is trying to run through a door because he wants to get catch the train. Um, so he runs to the door and just, you know, tries to get in the middle of the door so they have enough space and doesn't bother getting stuck in the door or something like that and tries to get, get the train, that's it. So he probably will go for information saving. Yes, he wants to be fast, but he doesn't have the time and ha hasn't practiced it. But imagine a sports, an Olympic sport, which is running through doors in the shortest time possible, reaching a train that leaves in exactly 15 seconds. And people train for 10 years to participate in the Olympics of running through doors. Catching the train. Catching the train. I bet with you these guys will not care about the information cost. They will basically run through the door in a way that will optimize their throughput. So they will run through the door for whatever, gripping the, the handle with, with a hand, so they can swing around in a very specific way and train probably to leave exactly the angle of 63.5 degrees mm -hmm. so that it will be exactly propagated into the just closing door of the train. In other words, yes, if I do better infinity, then I don't care about mm -hmm. saving information. Right. But if I'm in my default behavior, and it's one of many possible actions, I do, and that's the typical behavior for living organisms. They're not playing Olympics usually. Then I take the one that's cheaper. Right. But now, so so okay, so so we have we have constraints now on on how to optimize the information processing, and already you indicated that 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 embodiment itself can be another source of of constraints that help you to optimize right the information processing within the decision making system. Um, but now, there's sort of a hidden assumption there that the world is, is actually Markovian so far, right? Not, not, not exactly, no. No, it's not. So we have done that for systems where in principle the world is Markovian. 
If you do relevant information according to the formalism we've shown, what we do is the sensor is actually sub-Markovian. So you choose a sensor that just picks out the information it wants, and that creates a non-Markovian world. However, it doesn't care. So the information in the models we have looked at, the sensor essentially will be less information carrying than the world. And but it has the freedom of choosing the information it wants. Mm -hmm. But you know the upper bound of your information stays constant, right? The upper it, bound is a full... Does the world is predictable? Uh, in principle, yes. Yeah. However, you can do the same thing with a limited sensor. And what you get mm -hmm. there is typically that your relevant information goes up. Goes up, not down. It's mm -hmm. a surprising result. Christoph, Christoph Salge. You get more relevant information if your sensor is incomplete because you essentially the quality of information is worse. So you can't choose the information you want. You get a worse set of information. So you have to look at the bigger part of it to get the same quality mm -hmm. of information. But that would mean that, let's say, locally you have less information, but let's say collectively over all your sensors you gain information. Not necessarily. You gain what we call piggyback information. Mm -hmm. Piggyback information is information that's not useful for the original goal. But you have to collect it to be able to reach the original goal at the desired level. It's, it's kind of what, whatever you, you, order, you order a laptop from a company, you don't get just a laptop. You get a big, big box with lots of styrofoam, which you don't want, but you get it. And it's a bit like that. So this extra information comes with it. But the extra information is correlated with the goal-relevant information. It's not uncorrelated. It right. is correlated, but you don't actually it must need be. it. You could, you could throw it away, could throw it away, and just keep the goal-relevant information. But the problem is throwing it away is, is, is a waste. You process mm -hmm. it already. It's already there. So can you do something with it? And we claim that it gives you an opportunity for acceptation, so um, using it for other purposes than original, than the original goal, uh, so open-ended evolution, and that it may be a driver for pushing sensors to the maximum refinement mm -hmm. without requiring this to be an explicit evolutionary pressure, so, which would answer why you may have very good sensors, although there's not an obvious reason why you have to have it maximum resolution mm -hmm. vision. Right. So so I, I, I get that. But but why I brought up this idea of the predictable world or this Markovian assumption is that in terms of a normative framework where you want to dictate in some sense the, the principles along which the system has to optimize itself, maybe in a Markovian world those principles are qualitatively different than in a non-Markovian world because in a non-Markovian world I am forced to explore. Okay. Right. Yeah. To a to a larger extent, and following maybe different procedures than I ha I can do in a predictable world. Right. Now, if I'm forced to explore, this might compromise my my op my op optimization norms for my information processing system. Absolutely. Right. So so how do you see that trade off between then the the ability to explore while in an unknown world or partially unknown world while optimizing my information processing. I would like to make a comparison with business. In business, you have the components, you have basically the normal money flow, and you have the investment. And investment is what we would call exploration. 
if you have lots of extra resources, you can invest a lot on trying to basically reach out to new markets. But sometimes you don't have the reserves, and then you just live on the metabolism. You don't invest anything into exploring. So I don't think there's a single answer to that, um, because exploration is not per se a value. It's a value because of two reasons. The world does change, and we may want to be ready for this change. And because things may also, we just have the, we can. We have the resources, the extra resources that we can use, like um, Christoph Columbus used when, when Spain finished the war, um, and, or the Reconquista, and they had extra ambition, extra money. Portugal was already starting to explore uh, navigation routes, and Spanish thought, okay, let, we have the extra money, let's, let's invest it. Mm -hmm. But I think if you operate on, on the verge of, 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 of survival, you don't explore. You just try to survive. Try mm -hmm. to. Or if you are at a very, very, very well um, exploited niche, well, there are some examples for that. No, but for example, one, one, one issue I see there is that your exploration norm might actually work orthogonally to your exploitation norm. And this is, of course, a conflict that you have to resolve in some way if you talk about a controller. Yes. Right? So, of course, you can then say, well, under survival pressure, exploration will be minimized. But at baseline, let's say, you might want to explore so you actually know how to escape in the future more efficiently or, or what have you. Right? So, so there can be, in some sense, it also means you might want to break um, stable states in your optimized information processing in order to, let's say, um, identify new models by which you can describe your environment. Right, which in some sense relates to the question in this morning about uh, three-year-olds having absolutely no memory about the period before that time, because in, there's some state transition there in human memory, right? Yeah. Uh, so, so the the information processing optimization might face a similar catastrophic forgetting phase that is absolutely required to abduct into a new level of operation. I do think that uh, this is an interesting question. I view um, the um, process of doing stuff as you have a point, this is where you are, say, and the question is, do you have knowledge about the environment of where you could move to? This lateral or, or, or virtual knowledge of what could you happen if I would move there, I think is very important of whether you want to explore or not. So if the other op options are pretty good, uh, there's no reason why not send out some 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 species or is, spend some time in, in nearby solutions. If you know that your solution is just the best, um, then exploration becomes a problem. It's like you have a company which has an incredibly successful product, and it's very clear that any modification of the product will just not be good, and that does happen. And this company has a big problem actually finding then a new niche. They have this problem. Um, so uh, why I'm taking the company because mm -hmm. in a company there are sentient beings who control it and they can actually do a forward model. Uh, evolution as far as we know is limited with forward models. Perhaps there's some local forward model you can do in sexual selection but it's very limited. So it would really depend if the optimum is sharply defined. I think you have a problem with exploration. Mm -hmm. Exploration can only happen in big steps, and I don't see, for example, a local algorithm like evolution doing that. Mm -hmm. Humans do something else. 
when humans explore, they, because of the superior wiring or the, the, the more intricate wiring of what we call M, the memory, they can modify the topology of the search space and suddenly things that are far away become close. So I can, when I do, when the moment I have Newtonian dynamics, suddenly the concept of ballistic flight is something that's close to what else would be just a local trying to get something somehow running. Now suddenly I can make a prediction, yes, I can throw a stone to the moon in principle if I do it with the right uh, type of energy. In other words, this is a qualitative transition in this concept space, which we cannot see in evolution. Evolution doesn't have it, so in evolution everything must be somehow locally visible. There must be local hints that an exploration can be successful. If there is no local hints, then poor species will be going extinct if something changes. We can see that in cycles of, of say, um, parasite host cycles that are very, very strongly linked to our orchideas and, uh, and um, hummingbirds, which are very, very tightly linked and they can't actually separate. You take out one member out of the ecological web, the other member disappears. Mm -hmm. No, no, very unlikely they will adapt. Right. So then, um, okay, so now we have, this is the informational perspective on, on if you want, optimal decision making. But now you also brought in this notion of empowerment, which sort of is a complement to this informational perspective. So what is, what is unique about this empowerment notion and where did it come from? The original idea came, it's, it's really funny to say, it came originally from this robot football project. Um, we had the wish to model agents that go to the ball and kick it without having to tell them so. So we wanted not to avoid an external reward function. Um, so the idea became um, more formal when we introduced the perception action loop and the information view. It was clear that this model would be very naturally presented, or represented this, this idea, by having a potential set of potential actions in the future, how much change they could possibly invoke in the environment. Um, in other words, how much can you influence the environment? And it was very clear also that you need to see the influence. If you can't see, it doesn't count. And that was very natural to say, um, basically, from social sciences, the concept of empowerment means that people, disenfranchised people, for example, realize they can change the situation they are in, and they can also perceive that change. Uh, the perception is also important. It's a subjective measure. And it turned out that this measure turned out to be surprisingly effective. Um, we tried it in various scenarios, and we have something like 11 or 12 different scenarios, which it seems to really do produce behavior, motivated, self-motivated behavior, which does not require an external reward function. It basically produces goals. You give it a dynamics and it gives you goals, more or less. Um, the idea behind it is, if you have an organism, how does this organism choose its goals? Of course, there are some fundamental goals, like finding enough food and uh, mate and so on. These are fundamental goals. But apart from that, what do you do? And it seems to be that um, empowerment, so maximize your options, because that maximizes the states you can reach in the next step. If some states go away or niche go, get smaller, it increases your chance of getting out of this situation. And that seems to work surprisingly well. So the motivation was 
can we understand uh, from an evolutionary point of view, with very limited assumptions, how organisms can generically create their own goals when there is not a very clearly defined goal like eating or fleeing a mm -hmm. predator or something like that? So that means if we take as an example tool use, right? So I encounter an object and empowerment would then tell me, well, you can learn that this object will have a certain affordance that means relative to your morphology and your goals, you can achieve a certain objective with that. Right, so that's what you learn. You don't necessarily learn just the local properties of that object. Yes. You learn how to embed it within your own affordance repertoire. Yes, yes. Okay. But now, uh, so empowerment then allows you to incorporate objects but how well does that indeed again scale? It's the same issues also with within informational sense, because depending on how you process this, how you represent this, how you segment across different objects, you might have capacity limitations. Yes. So how does it scale? Well, empowerment itself, as it's defined, it doesn't care about cost. So it's really, as you said, orthogonal to the other view. Hmm. Um, you can combine it. You can put a cost or a kind of cost limitation on how many action sequences or action, potential actions you want to consider. And when you do that, uh, we get interesting results, namely dominant strategies, strategies which are particularly effective in changing the world. So um, you, you won't probably remember some kind of weird, weird um, wobbly movement that happens to move an object somewhere. You will remember really a clear, well-directed, um, well-established movement that clearly changes the world to one state rather to another. So that's something that actually this limitation gives you. We have also various tricks and algorithms and approximations how to calculate empowerment, also in the continuum, and this is being developed because um, now that it's established that empowerment really does a lot of cool behaviors, it's worth investing in actually scaling it up. Um, and some tricks uh, allow us, for example, to push empowerment forward many hundred steps or something. There are quite a few tricks. It's not it's really, really um, drastic approximations, but they give you qualitatively, uh, again, sensible results. And this is what an organism needs. An organism will not optimize this function to the very best. It wants some kind of thing that works. Mm -hmm. That's good enough. It's good enough, mm -hmm. yes. But now, so for empowerment, also the way you conceptualize this, it's like injecting information into the world and recovering the result, right? And then in some sense you can frame it again in, in, in a compatible framework of, of information processing. Um, but now the exploration that I have to engage in to understand what this object might contribute to my goals will take a certain amount of time, right? So, so how rapidly does such a process converge and how does it also depend on the degrees of freedom that the object would afford? Okay, learning is not yet part of the okay. model, uh, except for this one example that I showed you with a pendulum, where it actually learns how to model the forward model. When you say a concrete goal, we have not yet linked concrete goals to empowerment, mm -hmm. which is something that needs to be done, of course. But in real life, it's also similar. Imagine you play some new game that you, uh, you just learned the rules of. I won't mention Go, you probably know how to play Go, so I'll mention Focus, which is a really nice game. Um, and we once did it uh, many years ago as an exercise for our students. And the point about the game is that none of the students knew the game. 
we didn't know the game. There are no libraries, opening libraries. So we really had to learn this game from scratch. Um, and it was very interesting. In the beginning, it just looked like random walks. Uh, you do something, something happens. And after four or five games, you as a human player start to see structures. You start to see, oh, this, this does this, this does that, this does that. And you start to pick up the salient points, and this is where empowerment would come in. It would basically say, these are the salient points of the world. Of course, that doesn't solve the problem of actually beating your opponent, but it structures it. It tells you, okay, these are the points from where I can try to see whether I can beat my opponent. The so argument would be, it creates road, uh, roadmap or milestones, which tell me this is where I want to be, if I want to have control over these and these and these states of the game. And then you can ask, can I get to the goal there? So the argument is always, you are local. Your, your understanding is always local. Do these mile uh, road landmarks in my mental map give me a hint how I'm getting closer to whatever goal I may want to achieve? This is, in my opinion, how we are able to learn very abstract games or math or things like that, that we get these landmarks where we go to, and then we start mapping out where do from these landmarks are uh, sub-landmarks, and which sub-landmarks are conceptually closer to where we want to go to. Mm -hmm. It's purely hypothetical, mm -hmm. but I think, I think that that's the way to probably look at empowerment. Empowerment itself finds the landmarks the main ones doesn't find the goals. Or right. it creates the landmarks as a goal, but of course mm -hmm. if you have a specific goal, it just may give you a way of getting there. Mm -hmm. So but now so if we look at these two frameworks, right? For this information theoretical framework and talk about optimizing the information processing, linking sensory states to actions. Um, and then we have this more embodied action oriented empowerment view. Right? And they're orthogonal but Empowerment is something that also challenges the informational view because empowerment is also telling you, well, there's a lot of information really in the embodiment, in the action, in the world that is offloading the informational processing that is going on. So maybe that this whole emphasis on this very centralized view on behavior, it all has to happen in this cognitive engine that is optimizing informational. Uh, maybe, maybe that is so far at an extreme of our search space. Right? If we talk really about embodied action, that maybe your empowerment notion will sort of invalidate it. How do you see that? Well, it's an interesting question. Why do we have agents at all? Right? Why is there a concept of an agent in physics? Why did it emerge? And um, in my opinion, it's because, uh, in a way, some type of information likes to be accumulated. <laughs> so essentially, uh, like wants to like, if you like. Um, an organism, why does it want to procreate? Um, frankly, I think the reason is because there are some processes that basically parasite, are parasites in a way, on the physical world. And these parasites, they like to continue doing so. Um, because uh, that's what a parasite does. It wants to propagate its, its unique way of life, even if you the physics doesn't care, so it's not antagonistic either. Um, if a parasite parasites another organism, that other organism may not like it, and so that will try to get rid of it, of course. So it then becomes antagonistic in its meta, meta level. But 
I don't think that you can make a unique statement on, oh, empowerment is one, it's giving you the, 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 the one burning perspective, the other one is giving the other. They operate and they may have different parameters, different time scales. Um, the, for example, increase of your bandwidth of processing is slow. You can't just make your brain twice as big. Unlikely, perhaps uh, with CRISPR we can at some point try that. I think it would be ethically unquestionable, but in principle you could try. Um, what's fast? Empowerment is relatively fast. You need a forward model. Um, if you do you look at information preservation or information saving, that's something we do subconsciously. When we learn something, we use up a lot of bandwidth. Once we know how to do it, we use very little bandwidth because it's probably rewired reorganized in such a way that it will eat up less information. So I would say learning to grab an, a complicated object or handle a complicated object will be very bandwidth intensive, takes a long time. Then it's translated somehow, it's rewired in a way that internally will use less information. So in other words, this, this process happens all the time and what the time constants are and what the weights are, it's not something I would be able to make a speculation about. Right. But now, if if we try to map these these this concept um, to physical systems like the brain, would it imply that the brain tries to optimize its mean activity level? Is it really that isomorphic, or not? No, 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 no. I think I think the way to think of it is slightly different. If I have two brains. One uses a lot of information processing to do something, the other one uses very little. The other one or has an optimized way of doing that. It's clear that the other one has an advantage. Why? Because it can handle other tasks too, can learn additional tasks, it can concentrate on other tasks, it can react to danger faster. Um, so it has a lot of advantages indirectly. So both brains may be, for example, two twins. One twin has learned how to play tennis many years ago. The second twin, just learning it. They play against each other. Well, who's going to win? Of course, the one with, which spends less time thinking about his moves. Very simply so. And that's because he has had the opportunity to compress and, 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 and squeeze and optimize its information flow. And he can also perhaps even talking on the phone and upsetting his, his twin brother um, this way uh, what the, when the twin brother is sweating and trying to get, get just to the ball. Mm -hmm. So in other words, the advantage is not necessarily energetic. It's advantage in many dimensions. Information theory is, is basically saying just with this resources, if you have them, that's how much you can process, and that's how good you can process it. Right. But now, so Daniel, you also, in parallel to, to your theoretical work, you're now also the, the president-elect of the RoboCup organization, which, which is, of course, is an understandable concern, because this is also very much about testing a lot of these ideas in the real world. But why, why, why do you invest effort and time in, in sort of advancing this, this notion of RoboCup? Why is that so important to you? I do believe that we have several advantages by having that. First of all, we have a direct comparison. You can essentially come up with all kinds of algorithms which work in the lab under very controlled conditions. 
But at the end of the day, they will have to work in, in the field. And you can compare, does it actually work? I can't predict, say that it works if I have these and these and these and these constraints. But on the field, that's, there's no excuse. Either it works or it doesn't. And you see it immediately. And you see, oh, this guy has, this group has an excellent uh, vision system. Or this group has a very good walking system. And then you can learn. And even if you don't copy their system exactly, you can take, pick up ideas at various levels of abstraction. Either concrete code, if, if that's being published, for example, which happens in some groups and leaks, or else by seeing, oh, this is a concept that essentially everybody else is now using. Uh, let's take a very simple example, omnidirectional drive used to be a concept like that, that the beginning was not obvious for, for the mid-size league and later everybody introduced it. Uh, it's a very simple example, but there are more intricate ones. Um, the second thing is, I do believe that a lot of interesting questions emerge. Um, you have a relatively clearly defined task, a relatively clearly defined world, and yet it's very complicated. You have to get several things to work at once. And it's very motivating to think about, okay, what do I need in principle if I want to have such a machine to learn something like that from scratch? Of course, many teams write code to win the competition, so they have to be very special, specific about how to do that. On the other hand, I think it's a great motivator to think, if I have a robot that is not just running forward, I mean, if we look at walking robots, if that's what they do, a football robot cannot just walk forward, it has to understand what a sidekick is and when to do it, when to use it. Okay, this is all done by hand, but in principle the challenge is more general. When you're a footballer, you do that by instinct. You, well, not just, you train also a lot, but you have many things that you just do on the moment at the opportunity that you do. And I do think that this context switching that happens all the time is one of the major challenges of AI. So I think if we can address that in a proper way, so we can move away from handcrafted behavioral rules to a more automatic, autonomous decision of how to switch contexts from, say, walking to stopping to kicking to whatever, we will have made a big step ahead in the art. And finally, I, my personal view, that's a very, very personal view, it's not official or anything, I believe that we need new materials, new um, algorithms, and the new types of, of embodiment for robots to be actually able to achieve such a level of competence where the big goal of RoboCup, mm -hmm. which is 2050, to actually play and possibly win against the world champion, that it will push this uh, envelope much more strongly than if we say, yes, we need soft <laughs> materials, but yeah, at some point when, when it's ready, rather having this perspective gives you an incentive to actually try these materials a bit earlier. Of course. But when, when will uh, the first robot team win the Champions League? Well, the Champions League is beyond 2050. 2050, the goal has been declared playing against world champion, human world champion, and win. It's a very ambitious goal, but let's put it this way, it, when it was declared in 97, people really didn't believe that's even close to possible. There were hardly any humanoid robots in labs. There were probably a handful of labs in the world that had, could afford a humanoid robot, and today, humanoid robots are everywhere. Um, so even that already was a huge push ahead in terms of making robotic science more democratic mm -hmm. a 
are more popular and actually telling people yes it's possible to make a human ro humanoid robot that walks and doesn't fall down all the time but do you think the main challenge is in the biomechanics or in the cognition and the motor control <sighs> everywhere mm -hmm. i think biomechanics is a big issue energy is a big issue I think having an energy that so that a robot can run for 45 minutes in uninterrupted is massive. Um, so biomechanics energy is a major issue. But I think the cognition is also a major issue because you will have to contend with players like, say, Messi, or that really are flexible in their thinking. Mm -hmm. they, you can optimize in a particular situation something that you can shoot in, um, a penalty shot without fail essentially assuming the, the hardware doesn't break um, so you could be better than humans on a penalty for example that might be possible that we would beat humans on very specific subtasks but in a generic game situation to make the right decision hopping up risking life and limb um, to keep the ball above your head into the goal that's something that humans do and it, it could it's called a chilena here right yeah, yeah, yeah mm -hmm. exactly. And then, then essentially doing that as a human player um, requires a lot of guts and, and nerve and instinct and not every player can do that. So it's very clear that it's a very special skill. Mm -hmm. But now, can a robot football player in the current competitions get a red card? There are ways of uh, getting fouls, uh, but right now the fouls are relatively mild. It's basically mm -hmm. blocking the goal and things like that. Okay. Um, in the future, and for example, in the simulation league, they introduce already fouls. So if a um, player, uh, I'm not exactly sure how they implement it, but it's automatic. If a player kicks another player without going for the ball, I think, then um, it's, um, it's a foul. Mm -hmm. There are certain certain mm -hmm. rules they try to implement. Right. Now the RoboCup is a bit like the Robot Olympics, if you want, right? Even though there's a separate competition also with that name. And in Olympics also continuously change the disciplines that that are participating. So do you see also in Robot Cup that it might be changing, that, that it will further expand into other domains? Maybe soon we have robot basketball or robot tennis? There are changes. Um, first of all, in the main leagues, um, they are actually, they've become harder and harder. That's why if you look at, watch the games, sometimes the games look less interesting as time goes by because they become much more hard to follow. So football, for example, they took away the colors of the goals, they took away um, lots of structure from the field. The ball has no color anymore, so it's really a very challenging problem. Um, other leagues come and go. So there are leagues who emerge, for example the robot legged league, that was the robot, uh, Sony Ivo robots. Um, <clears throat> that league was um, introduced, um, I think the first demo games were 98. And it disappeared later when it was superseded by um, Humanoid uh, Standard Platform League, which is basically run, that's where you see the now robots. So in this case, you have a development of the leagues, or a disappearance of leagues, or a merge of new leagues, like we have a logistics league, we have an um, at-home league, which is uh, concerned with um, making robots more flexible, so flexible they can deal with problems of home robotics, which is of course a huge challenge. It's much easier to write, develop a robot for industrial <laughs> set than for a homes, but those homes are notoriously unpredictable. Would you feel that something like a robot war league would be fitting? 
Well, first of all, um, I must say that uh, war is not a very nice set of tests. Um, and the second thing is, first of all, it's destructive. Um, I find that a little bit um, unsettling. Um, and also it's an issue of ethics in general. Uh, I don't think that we want autonomous robots to know how to destroy other entities. Uh, I think I think that's uh, where, where it gets problematic. But the other thing is the robot wars exists and it's a remote controlled league. So it's not autonomous. So in other words, RoboCop is fully about autonomy. You want autonomy. Mm -hmm. But you know why I bring it up is that maybe the real challenge here is about building moral robots. That that's our real challenge. Because in think on the midterm already, we really have to master how to build robots that are autonomously and truly, let's say, assistive and moral in their behavior. Because to build a destructive robot is easy. But our challenge is how do we control this and how do we make it transparent? And, and what I'm worried about is that right now the robot league, the robot war uh, competitions are a bit sort of in the public media, uh, military organizations are, of course, looking into these things. It's completely outside the realms of, of transparent analysis and debate and i think that's even a bigger risk so i was wondering whether it not be making making sense to maybe have a league where robots can do damage but they manage to not do it autonomously because this is what right. we have to master and we have to drive this debate as researchers we cannot leave it to or to non-academic institutions to do this behind closed doors no one knows where it's going and once it hits the streets we have no frameworks to deal with it so that's why i was wondering whether it would not be an idea to at least start to think about how to also incorporate this even though it is a painful issue it, it is an insulting issue sometimes but we cannot close our eyes for it i would say and uh, it's really nice that you bring it up one of the statements i made uh, before i, I was um basically uh, selected as the coming uh, president, is that I think that robot ethics is a major point that should be discussed in RoboCup. Um, I think it's an excellent opportunity, because even in a football game, how much damage I'm ready to do to my fellow player um, if I want to win. So it's already appearing there. It's very clear that the concept of fair, fair game is already there. I think that Robot ethics has the same problems as human ethics. How do you prevent them? This is an example I brought many years ago and repeated, and unfortunately, um, reality has, has caught up with me. With my example, I was saying, how do you ensure that a passenger airline pilot does not take the plane and crash it somewhere? Uh, this was an example I actually brought up, and you don't. You don't know, you can't see into the head. You believe that socialization helps, that you know the person, that you trust the person, and you believe that they have a self-preservation uh, need and so on. So there's a whole set of safeguards which we assume, but when you take them away, when they disappear, when people don't pay attention, bad things can happen. So I don't think that robots will be exempt from that. Um, however, I think I see a way forward for making robots more ethical, and that's very simple. It's essentially the same thing that humans need to do to be more ethical, namely, basically, a, um, a generalization of the concept of empathy. And there's, just for an example, for how that could look like, and again, this is just pure, I would say, uh, pure motivation. It's nothing 
well developed, it's just the first glimpse. Christian Gokelsberger from Goldsmith and Christoph Sager uh, from Hartz, they have developed a model of basically NPCs, so players, um, you have a video game and they are accompanied by a pet or a companion. And the problem is these companions are usually quite stupid, they act really in a stupid way. And one thing that they did was using in empowerment, cross-empowerment, as a value function for the pet, for the companion. So the companion tries to maximize empowerment of its master and its own too, so it uh, tries not to die, of course. And when you do that, it's very interesting. Then, for example, it will shoot an enemy that endangers the, the master. Um, and it will behave in various ways in a sensible way. One thing, for example, that it shows how, how almost human-like it reacts. Empowerment looks at, it takes into account all possible actions. And so the pet has, by default, assumes that the human could be a psycho and kill the pet. So the pet has also a sense of self-preservation, so it will accompany him and help the human, but it will stay out of his shooting direction. Mm -hmm. Unless you turn on a trust flag, mm -hmm. in which case um, that basically the pet will trust the human right. and will enter his shooting mm -hmm. uh, shooting direction. Mm -hmm. So here we have empathy, of course, because the pet has a model of the human and what the human could be doing. And if that model is wrong, then yes, uh, you have a problem. But at least it's very clear where empathy and trustworthiness and probably ethics come mm -hmm. from. It's basically knowing what the other one needs and not acting too much against right. that. Mm -hmm. So uh, my prediction there is that what we're going to see is to build machines that know how to handle trust will be orders of magnitude more difficult than to get the biomechanics right. I'm not sure about that. Um, I think trust is a state of mind. So it's a belief state. It's basically saying, what do I believe will the other one do? Uh, it's related to game theory um, common knowledge. Um, for example, if I am a player and I have an advantage having a pet, my pet knows that I have an advantage having it. And, and so on, then the trust can emerge on its own. If I'm a new player, uh, basically a newbie, perhaps the pet will say, no, this guy doesn't know that yet, so I'll, I'll wait and see how, how he behaves before I trust him. And that's in real life it happens too. If you have a team of people and one person is new into the, to the business, a new boss, uh, you don't trust him immediately, you see how he behaves and it turns out, okay, he knows what he's doing, he has a good model of the future, and then you start trusting him. Mm -hmm. So, in other words, I don't think that this is, I mean, the practice will be very difficult, of course, as all learning is, but I think conceptually, I don't think we are that far away from that, conceptually. Mm -hmm. The practice is a different mm -hmm. story. Okay. Biomechanics mm -hmm. is, is, is we're really far away. Mm -hmm. So, but then, I don't think I agree, but that, 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 that's fine. Um, but. I think the, the other issue that's really important here, why I think it, this should be included in RoboCop, is that we, ha if we look at the history of our science, we know there is no value-free science. Right. And the mistake science has made over the ages is to develop technologies and knowledge and then leave it to others to figure out what the ethics of it is. This is not working. So if we 
we as the researchers behind these kinds of machines are not actively engaged in that debate, we will not have normative frameworks when we need them. Because for instance, if you go to bioethics or general ethics of human behavior, we have no normative frameworks. We're stuck. And I feel that therefore, just for that reason, and also given this historical consideration of science is not value-free, so it's also us, the scientists, who now have to engage with that. So for that, I think it's important that it gets included. But now, so you, so you have a broad set of interests. You're driving this whole RoboCup community now forward into the future 2050 you're going to beat the world champion of course great to have predictions that only to be tested by the time we are in a retirement home somewhere so no one can blame us for for making predictions that fail but now if if we would like to follow in the tradition that 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 you represent what would be the polani law that we have to adhere to well i wouldn't formulate it as polani law i think it's a very simple law uh, that it's much older and that's uh, the golden rule. Um, don't do to others what you want be done to you. Uh, but actually the rule needs to be generalized because a machine that can op- offload its memory onto a big computer has a completely different view on survival than a human. A uh, human turned off will not be turned on again. A machine turned off can very well be turned on again. And so I would say the golden rule needs to be generalized don't to do to somebody else what they themselves, according to the best model that you can have from them, would not like to be done to them. Mm-hmm. Okay. So it's a law of empathy, essentially. Yes. And then three years from now, we're going to go visit you um, with Anna, who's waving at us there behind the glass. And we're going we're gonna to check whether the prediction you're going to make today was confirmed or not. So what's the the one non-trivial prediction you, you would like to see tested three years from now that you're going to see confirmed? Three years is a short time. Can we increase the period? Four. That's too small. Ten? No, come on. Let's do it like this. Compromise. Three and ten. Oh, that's not a compromise. That makes it harder. Well, I think... I'm happy to make predictions. I'm not so happy making putting times on it. And I'll tell you okay. why. Because I think that discoveries are power law distributed. So it's like avalanches. You know it will happen or earthquakes. They will happen. You don't know when and how big they will be. So the prediction that I think is that we will have to completely... Not completely, but significantly expand our understanding of how to create contexts or or switch contexts if we want proper AI to emerge Mm -hmm. rather than highly specialized, highly optimized um, one domain optimizers. Mm -hmm. Right. That is something that I'm, I'm sure. I would not put a number on it, probably say no, I, I'd rather mm-hmm. I'd rather not give a number to that because this this is nonsense. It may happen in three years. It may happen. In three years. So it's more an aspiration of let's say, yes. uh, if you want a general intelligence that is context independent, in RoboCup they can play football and basketball. Uh, for example, where I, even in RoboCup that can play football, but where I don't have to encode um, how to switch context between the mm-hmm. uh, from a stance to a kick to a, to right. a defense, etc. If mm-hmm. I can't, if I don't have to do that myself anymore, I would say we made a huge step ahead. 
<laughs> not sure whether it's enough for what we would call AI um, to be complete, but I would say this uh, without this, it will not happen. Okay, great. Daniel Polani, thank you very much for this conversation. Thank you. <laughs> The CSN podcast was produced by the Convergent Science Network of Biomimetics and Biohybrid Systems, a project funded by the European 7th Research Framework Programme. For more interviews, recorded lectures, or upcoming conferences in the field of biomimetics and biohybrid systems, go to csnnetwork.eu. And thank you for listening.